From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. We did it. We made it to another weekend. This week, we are going to talk to the author of a new book called Wolfish, which is all about humans' complicated relationship with wolves and fear. When somebody says, oh, you're wolfish or you're hungry like a wolf, like unpack that. But first, let's sit back and unwind from the week that was with two excellent humans. With us this week, we have WBEZ host and reporter Araceli Gomez-Aldana. Araceli, hello. Hey, how's it going? We also have NPR political correspondent Danielle Kurtzleben. Danielle, welcome back. Hello. Thank you so much. Okay, so I want to talk about something that's actually a couple of weeks old, but I just can't stop thinking about it. So The Cut, which is, you know, New York Magazine, they came out with this list couple weeks ago now of 140 modern etiquette rules. And I just can't stop thinking about it. Some of the advice I can really get behind others. I like in theory, but not in practice. Others I just kind of hate altogether. I think my least favorite might be that number 94, which says it's okay to email, text or DM anyone at any hour. (laughs) But I'm really curious. I mean, obviously, this is an extremely thorough list that spans everything from work to relationships and friendships and all of the things. Uh, Araceli, what did you think? So I was expecting different types of etiquettes, right? So I was Mm. like, oh, okay, like your typical, like, what fork to use, whatever, right? Like I was expecting a little bit of that. But I kind of realized that this list is, in my opinion, just a list of like how to be just a normal human like a kind person (laughs) not to be an asshole yeah yeah (laughs) like that was just like oh we have to write this one down or like yeah I think it was just like a lot of them I'm like yeah duh I I agree Mm. with yeah a lot of the ones that I had questions about were just like it probably I don't need to know I I don't need to know this one anymore like there was one that was like about lube I'm like we could have skipped this one You know, we don't need to add it. I don't. (laughs) I had questions about that one, too, but was also like, maybe I'm not going to bring up lube on this podcast. So thank you for being the one to do it. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, I'm sorry. What 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 questions do you guys have about lube? Like, why? why? I was wondering why it had to be like, if you're an adult, you must have lube. Why do we have to put this in this rules? I don't get it. I also don't get there was like one that was like. I think it was like 38. It was just like always wink. Ooh, I also I love don't get one. that one. That one is weird as hell. Like, no, do not <laughs> always wink. I mean, I love Lucille Bluth winking. I think that's the thing. There are very specific instances of winks that I do find to be like the apex of facial expression. Do I want creepy people to wink at me randomly? Not at all. Am I going to wink at anyone ever? Probably not. Yeah. But the thing is, it says like wink always or something like that right always i mean wink. yeah always wink okay i would have been fine with it if it was like <laughs> wink when appropriate wink sometimes it yeah. was like wink all i i did not understand also i can't even wink like both of my eyes closed <laughs> like, so. Really? Oh, huh. that's so cute yeah wait okay okay i i want to talk about the one that is just the most monstrous to me which is don't foist your allergies onto a dinner party. But yeah. reading the description for it, I don't think that's exactly what she meant, or at least I mm. hope not, because she's talking. She then goes on to say, "Once I gave a dinner party, et cetera, et cetera. Then a famous designer, I won't say who, ooh, uh, showed mm. up with a blender filled with the ingredients for his own meal. He was on some very restricted diet. And I, like on the one hand, if I'm making you dinner and you say, "Oh, by the way, I'm whole thirty. Please cater to me," like that's right. That's one thing. But mm-hmm. like. 
I don't want to kill my dinner party guests. If a peanut yeah. or a or a shrimp is going to send you into shock, like I I'd prefer that not happen. I don't know. <laughs> I agree because it was like just eat around it. It's like when you have an allergy, you can't eat around your right. allergy. Yeah. You have yeah. to like ask all of the questions and about how the food was prepared and what it was prepared near. Like no, I. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> you know, the one that I found really annoying was um, the whole thing about dishes. Like if your host starts doing the dishes, it's time for you to leave. Because I always I really love when like my guests entertain me while I do the dishes. I kind of feel like that's yeah. the least they can do if I've cooked them a meal. See, I liked that one. I do like that. I feel like it has to be like a close friend. Like if you yeah. have a dinner party and there's a lot of people at your house and you're hosting them, it is probably not a good idea to start cleaning while they're there. Like that would be like rude in my eyes. Right. But if yeah. it's just you and your best friend and you guys are you know you're doing the dishes and you guys are hanging out like i i totally get that i was wondering about the one that has plagued us i think a long time which is the one that's like for groups of like for dinner with friends always split the bill evenly i feel like that one's controversial so i was wondering what you guys thought and it i don't know why it automatically made me think like what were the gals in Sex in the City doing about this because they went out a lot and they had a That's lot of true. drinks, right? So Yeah, and they did not have Venmo back then either. And they know? didn't have Venmo. So right. like I don't know what how do you guys feel about that one? What do you think, Danielle? I like I like to split a bill, but if I, you know, especially if I got drinks or something that's like remarkably more expensive, I definitely will offer to cover tip or whatever. And that usually is enough to make it work. Yeah. I mean, unless there's some there's some egregious difference in between what people are eating, like I have a side salad, you have a, a rack Steak. of lamb or something yeah like <laughs> yeah. then yeah that that's a little unfair but the, the the list pretty much hits on exactly what i do which is yeah split it evenly but if you're not drinking and everyone else is then the drinkers pick up the tip and and you all go from there but mm-hmm. i do think there's also i mean so many of these and maybe this is as true of all etiquette rules like depend on the case like if you're out with someone mm-hmm. where one person earns way more than the other, and which mm. is a totally probably unspoken thing in many friendships or relationships. Like the the person who has way more money perhaps should pick should offer to pick up the bill. You know, like there's there's a lot yeah. of stuff that kind of passes unspoken between people. But um, I'm getting into the nitty gritty here because, like, yeah, in a big group, just split the bill. It's easier. Yeah, yeah. a lot of it. The thinking for me is also just like. Make life easy for the wait staff, you know? For sure. Well, and to that end, I almost think it's probably the the best thing to do would be to put one card in and have everyone Venmo you, right? Yeah. Because running yeah. six cards kind of sucks, even if you are doing it all evenly. Like, that's still kind of a pain, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like even now people are kind of like capping you. They're like, we will only run three cards, right? right? <laughs> exactly. <So> like- <laughs> yeah. I did think there were a couple of really good ones, and yes. one of them was number 13, which was it's never too late to send a condolence note. I think that's one yeah. I've been hung up on in the past, you know, like, oh, no, like, I missed my window. I shouldn't say anything. I don't want to make it weird. But, you know, it's like odds are whatever, you know, if it's a difficult enough thing that the person went through, they're going to be really grateful that you're acknowledging that they went through that difficult thing. Yeah. yeah. And I always kind of um, I'm I'm very guilty of like waiting too long. Mm. Um, but my the way I rationalize it in my brain to make myself be, 
feel better when I actually do send a note is just like, hey, look, I'm thinking of you. And, yeah. you know, you know what I mean? So, like, I, I agree. I always send it. Always send a note. If you are thinking about someone, let them know. Like, just mm. whenever it is. I agree with it. Yeah. And the one that I really, really liked, uh, it's much lower key. It's if someone else mispronounces a word in conversation. Mm. Yes. There is no need for you to tell them what the correct pro- unless it's like your name or something like that sure. but i mean like sure like yeah you know it, they, you understand what they said just there, there's no need to be the smarty pants just get get on with life you know yeah for sure okay so there was another story that caught our attention this week that i think is sort of tangentially related to the etiquette stuff at least in that it's about how people are navigating their personal relationships and this is from the new york times in the headline was i love you but i don't want to sleep with you and it was about couples who sleep in different rooms and you know they cite different sleep schedules maybe or snoring or just kind of wanting their own space i thought it was pretty interesting i mean partly it's sort of like to what extent is this a new york times trend piece that's not actually explaining much about a trend at all imagine Um, that (laughs) and you know we talk to relationship experts who are worried that this is more of like turning lovers into glorified roommates um, but I don't know. I think especially since both of you cohabitate with a partner, I was really curious what what your takes on this were. I, I was actually really glad they brought up um, like how like the elite or like royals would sleep in different quarters. Like they said mm. it like because that's the first thing like I when I read the you know, when I started reading the article, I was like, oh, well, this has been done for a while. I totally. think it's like and I think. And then as I kept going, I just realized that it is actually pretty consistent. So obviously people who are in like, you know, higher economic statuses had the ability to sleep in different mm, rooms. True. And it's they could still true. <laughs> like it's still true. They're yeah. like, oh, yes, I, I we did this whole interior design on a new bedroom. And it's like, well, you had the money and you have the money to have like a true bedroom or a three bedroom or a four bedroom in one case. Right. Um, so it's still true, I guess. You the more the more money you have, the more rooms you want and I guess you also want to be alone. I don't know. <laughs> I have, uh, I'm coming at this at a very particular time with a yes. very particular point of view. As I speak to you, I am going on 38 weeks pregnant. What? You are extremely pregnant right now. You are growing a whole human inside of you. Beautiful. I have a big gal right now. And, uh, <laughs> and like, and that, God, I, I didn't know any of this before I became pregnant. There's so much sleep stuff that goes with mm. it. Like, I have my giant pregnancy pillow. Why? Nice. Because if I roll onto my back, first of all, I could pass out, which don't get me started. But second of all, like, I snore like you would not believe <laughs> right now. Furthermore, God, I keep beach towels next to the bed because <laughs> the hormones give you night sweats. And oh, like, wow. I wake up at 2 a.m. and God, your, your listeners are loving this, I'm sure. And I've just like <laughs> soaked through the whole ass, like sheets, mattress pad, like, oh, oh. it's disgusting. Plus, like, carpal tunnel braces. Anyway, my point is that, like, I am unpleasant and loud to sleep with. And my partner and I have been – he has been – we have, we start most nights sleeping together. But at some point, someone, almost always him, goes to the <laughs> other bedroom and because I'm a lot. And so, like <laughs> – I get that. I totally yeah. get that. I feel like there's always situations where you, I, I, you know, I even understand people's sleep schedules. Like, right. Like I, I thought about people who are like firefighters or, yeah. 
I don't know, you know, sometimes people are away for long periods of time. Like if you're a flight attendant, you're away mm. and then you come back and like you kind yeah. of get used to like maybe having the whole bed to yourself or something like that. Like I, I totally get that. And I was reading this also through the lens of I am very big on sleep. Like I love yes. sleep. I love my sleep. Yes. Like I, yeah. I will sleep as long as possible. So if it is really affecting your sleep, then yeah, be happy, be a healthy, happy person and like get your sleep. But then I also was thinking like, I am with, with my husband, like we are attached at the hip. So like, I can't even imagine, like I cannot <laughs> imagine spending one night away. Right. So it, I guess it really Unless is. Unless you had to. Yeah. Unless we have to. So it's like really individual and I'm like whatever works for you that's great but it is a little bit like I want to be with my person so right well and I think that kind of goes back to the etiquette rules too right of like sure these are good like general ideas or whatever but in the end it's up to people to figure out what works for them and if everybody's okay with it then great right yeah I mean I do understand because the article we're talking about quotes various I think they're um, what couples counselors and that sort of person mm-hmm. throughout right. saying you know Sure, this might work for some people, but also it can be, I think the phrase they use is a pink flag, like a sign that, well, are you sleeping apart because you sleep better or are you sleeping apart because you're kind of upset at each other? And I will say that before pregnancy, even then, uh, every couple weeks, few weeks, I would say to I would say to my husband, like, all right, I really need to sleep well tonight. Can we sleep separately? And Mm -hmm. almost always there's a check that goes with that, like. Yes. Is this because is everything okay? Mm-hmm. Like, are we sleeping apart tonight because you need to sleep, or is someone upset about something? And like, or are we it, sleeping apart tonight because you said that snarky thing yesterday, and I still correct. haven't gotten over it, and we should probably talk about it? Yeah, exactly. And like, you know, the other thing, side note, is that like there can be a kind of romantic side to it. Like, I have to be on Morning Edition tomorrow at four a.m. or something. Like, we're in separate bedrooms texting each other then because he doesn't want to wake up at four but we text each other from the other bedrooms like i miss you and i I realize that's disgusting but it's sweet no that's sweet it's not disgusting danielle it's sweet thank you adorable i love it i did learn something new they quote someone saying a sexless relationship is clinically defined as having sex together no more than six times a year so i didn't know there was a number that is like what's a sexless relationship that one caught my eye yeah, I, I yeah. want to know how they, who determined that and how. Like, I'm not even arguing with it, but like, I, right. <laughs> I'm wondering what kind of a committee gets together to clinically define this. Correct. Yes. <laughs> that is a really good question. And six times a year. I mean, that's not zero times a year. I know. Yeah, that's, that's the thing that's not, that's literally not sexless. Right. You know? Yeah. It's very infrequent, but like, it's not sexless. It's probably men. It's probably men. <laughs> Well, on that note, <laughs> Danielle Ursuli, thank you both so much. This was very fun, and we went in a lot of directions I hadn't anticipated. So, thank you for that as well. <laughs> oh yeah, anytime. Thanks for having us, and congrats, Danielle. Yes, wow. congratulations, Danielle. Thank you. In just a minute, we're going to talk with Erica Berry about her new book, Wolfish. Have you ever wondered why anyone drinks Malort? Or if there are actually lobsters in the Chicago River? Then listen to the Curious City podcast, where we answer all your questions about Chicago and the region. 
WBEZ's Curious City is part of the NPR Network and available wherever you find your podcasts. Our next guest is Erica Berry. She is a Portland-based writer and the author of the new book, Wolfish, Wolf, Self, and the Stories We Tell About Fear. It's about the literal animal, yes, but also what it symbolizes in myth and culture and beyond. Erica, welcome to Nerdette. Thank you so much. It's such a delight to be here. So this book, as I say, it is about the literal wolf. It's also about the phrase, the symbolic wolf, which is the idea of how we've like imbued the wolf, which with so much greater meaning for centuries now, like throughout human history. Um, I'd love to start with just like, why the wolf for you? Yeah, I think if you would have told my 10 year old self that my first book would have been I definitely wanted to write a book then but if you'd have told me like Mm. it's going to be about wolves I would have had to do a lot of like soul searching into the future to get there um and I think you know it was like this combo of things really where I became drawn to both the literal flesh and blood wolf and the symbolic wolf kind of at the same time um Mm. and wolves were repopulating my home state of Oregon and it was quite controversial and it was sort of like sparking all of these larger cultural debates about who should get to decide what's happening on certain land or who should be living there. I became very interested sort of like academically. Um, And there was this one wolf, OR7, who of course I write about, who sort of like caught my attention even as like a hungover college student in Maine at Mm. the time, who Mm. wasn't really following wolves because he was breaking all these records and people were referring to him in this sort of celebrity way. And so that was like the real wolf caught my attention. And then around that time also, um, sort of in my young 20s, late teen years, I was really struggling with the presence of fear in my own life. And Mm -hmm. I had an experience walking down the sidewalk where I was grabbed by a man I didn't know. And Mm -hmm. um, I was thinking about Little Red Riding Hood suddenly, and I didn't really want to be thinking about Little Red Riding Hood. And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, I wanted on one level to, how could I look at the wolf as this real animal? But then at the same time, like the presence of wolves that I'd grown up with in this sort of like canon of Western folktale and sort of fairy tale and stories, that felt very present in my life too. I think it's super interesting. I, it definitely like sparks some stuff in my brain too. I, you know, you mentioned Little Red Riding Hood. I think also about, you know, phrases we use like lone wolf or wolf in sheep's clothing, big bad wolf. What are some of the other like symbolic reputations that you think wolves are contending with? Yeah, there's so many. I became sort of obsessed with tracking these idioms from around Mm. the world. And often the stories about the wolf become like how parents teach their young to like be smart or stay alive. Um, And there was such a strange sort of like wisdom imbuing quality, like where there's one, um, oh my gosh, I'm going to maybe butcher it, but something like, oh no, you got um, it. if you think you see the wolf, it appears essentially, or like mm. um, the idea of the wolf at the door becomes sort of this symbol of like the stakes of hunger or danger. And, mm. you know, they're constantly sort of talked about as this representation of that, which is the threat. Um, and I think, you know, the more I learned about wolves, like they raise their children kind of together and, you know, you'll have like aunties and uncles, like bringing food to the young wolves and like those metaphoric conjurings rarely appear, you know, um, where we really talk about the wolf as like this great figure of community and like 
one of the monogamous animals. I mean, we're recording this on Valentine's Day and like there are these beautiful love stories of wolves being together for many years and, you know, a pack will pass on the landscape. Um, sometimes their territory will stay within one pack of wolves for multiple generations. Like there's a sort of tending there that I think are just really fascinating and did not at all get into those sort of like rote idioms of like bad thing outside my door. Right. It's so interesting. How much of it do you think really is just the fact that like humans as apex predators want to be apex predators? You know, it's like there's only so much stuff out there that's actually that threatening to us, even if it's not really threatening. Yeah, I think that's such a good point. And like so much of our relationship with wolves is this sort of projection um, fantasy where I felt like, you know, it's both about like wanting to kill the wolf and also wanting to become the wolf. That's sort of like some prototypical Mm. kind of masculine Western view of it, I would say. And those two strands are, are really, really interesting. I mean, I came across research in like 18th century Japan and sort of some villages in the northeastern part of the country, like villagers would be thanking the wolf because the wolf was the one that was chasing away the deer and their, Mm. you know, economic system was based on tending crops. So like in that landscape, the wolf is kind of like a shepherd in a weird way, you know, it's someone to think. And it's only when we were having these like livestock producing areas that the wolf suddenly becomes like our competition for food. And so I think Mm. it became an interest, it became important to me with this book, like not just to look at the wolf, but to look at like the world existed in and to understand that like the ways that we talk about animals or think about animals are so shaped by all these other factors sort of like tugging at our cultural social fabric that maybe we don't recognize or that I, I didn't always feel that like environmental books were allowed to talk about the gravity of these other forces. It's really interesting. And it kind of reminds me also of actually our book club pick this month, which is Sabrina Imbler's How Far the Light Reaches. I don't know if you've read it. Amazing. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. And I think they're doing something really similar around sort of it's like this very interesting gray area between like you're looking at the science and you're sort of anthropomorphizing but you're you're finding metaphors that relate to human nature without over and like without assigning motivations to creatures you know what i mean i'm saying that sloppily no totally i mean i think there is a quality where i really wanted to think about when somebody says oh you're wolfish or you're hungry Mm -hmm. like a wolf like what does that mean? It's maybe like Mm -hmm. quite benign, but like unpack that. And at the same time, part of, I feel like the project of this book was thinking like, how do I look at an animal? Like (laughs) animals represent so much. I think John Berger said like the first metaphors that have existed for humans are about animals. So Mm -hmm. given the sort of like lineage that we've inherited, I wanted to sort of represent on the page, maybe what readers would have and like maybe leave this book thinking like, oh yeah, like how do I like narrate? You know, sometimes you're like subtitling animals when you see them in the wild, or I shouldn't say you, I do that, right? And I wanted to challenge like, (laughs) what is that impulse? And like, what am I saying? So you cite some really interesting statistics in this book, partly around the fact that wolves are not nearly as menacing as, you know, Little Red Riding Hood lets them seem to be in terms of threats to humans. You say that more people are killed each year by cows, by toddlers who pick up guns, falling vending machines, lawnmowers and lightning and ladders and autoerotic asphyxiations. 
Yeah. I mean, you read these statistics, right? And then while I was actually working on it, um, a good friend of mine, her, her father raised cows and he, he was killed by them. Um, and mm. there was something very surreal about, um, grieving like this death that <laughs> I'd never yeah. heard of before as I was writing this book about wolves. And I think part of what I'm interested in the book is like our sense of sort of what is rational or irrational fear is really skewed. And I remember talking to one livestock producer um, who was saying that when she walks around her ranch, she loves hiking. She doesn't mind the presence of wolves. She wishes they weren't there, but she's not one of those, um, you know, producers that's like, everyone should be dead. She's just like, I just don't want them to hurt my cows. But she did say like, she's not afraid of cougars. She's afraid of wolves. And we were looking at one of her wildlife cameras. There was like a pride of mountain lions there. And in my mm -hmm. mind, like a pride of mountain lions would give yeah. me more pause walking around than like the one wolf. And in our conversations, she was like, wow, you're right. Like, I guess I do sort of fear the wrong thing. And I think like mm -hmm. we like inherit the fears and don't think about how we grow into them. We just think about how we might grow out of them. And like, I feel like I became very interested in like, yeah, nobody's, <laughs> nobody's talking about being afraid of ladders. And my job is not here to be like, <laughs> be afraid of ladders. Um, but also right. maybe it is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's super interesting. There's something that I found myself thinking about even, you know, several months ago when I first saw that this book was coming out and just saw the title Wolfish. And and it's something that is still a little half-baked, so bear with me here. But I feel like over the last couple of years especially, and I don't know how much it has to do with the idea of women. I mean, you described the situation of, you know, being attacked in the night by a random stranger dude. Like I think so often we do speaking of our own fear mm -hmm. feel like prey or like we could be prey if we do the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that there is something about the wolf symbolically that has been shifting in conversations for women around sort of like not becoming a predator, but around like embracing wildness mm -hmm. and I can't put my finger on it. I'm curious if that is something that has resonated with you too. And if so, if you can explain it better than I can. No, I love that. I mean, I think tracing like there's that really famous book, right? Women who run with right. the wolves. Um, and yeah. that was sort of like the seventies bestseller. And I think the idea at some point it occurred to me that like wolves and humans were both sort of fascinating to look at because we were both predator and prey and could, could switch back and forth between being both of those things, which like very mm. much challenges the sort of archetypal image of like somebody's predator and somebody's prey. And that's just like the way it is. And that's those dynamics. And I think, you know, I was talking to one biologist about finding one of the wolves he'd been tracking dead um, with surrounded by blood. And it was because the mm -hmm. elk had like skewered the wolf on its antler. Um, and wow. he was like, the, pre the prey, we should give them more credit. Like they can be really, really tough. And I think mm -hmm. like as a woman, it's interesting, like where I project myself onto the wolf. And I think part of that, there's like a mixture of vulnerability and competence and like ferocity that I just don't think we tend to see like vulnerability and ferocity as like two strands of the same creature. And I think yes. there is something about witnessing that and feeling like, oh yeah, what does that mean? You know, for me, I was thinking like, of course, in some of these moments walking down the street, I feel like prey, but also I, in this book, I was trying to interrogate the moments where like, 
I might also have a predatory presence, say, walking on stolen land as the white mm. person and thinking about all the ways that power doesn't fall onto that clear binary. Thank you. That was beautiful. That was much better said than I had. <laughs> oh my gosh. I feel like I'm really just talking in circles around this idea that you've brought up and I will no. now be thinking about it for the next awesome. three hours. Yeah. I love that. Well, I think I thought of it recently because of a meme that a friend of mine posted and it was something around sort of like uh, being ashamed of what she found monstrous about herself and and it was depicted as a wolf and then realizing that actually this is something that she could come to peace with. And as a result, and like the last image is her holding the wolf as if it's like a puppy. Okay. I love that. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting. I found it very evocative and I think it's, I think it's super resonant with what you're talking about in this book too. Well, it makes me think of that another meme, right? The like inside of you, there are two wolves <laughs> meme, which I just think yes. is interesting in part because I'm like, it's not two wolves. It's one wolf. Like it's one mm. wolf that has these two different sides. And right. in a in a way, like watching, you know, you read these accounts of people watching wolves and like the most tender mother wolf might also be there's I talk about a story where a mother wolf who was threatened sort of by there was a territory kind of dispute between wolves and coyotes mm. sharing the space and having their two dens and like the wolf mother ends up like eating the coyote babies in front of Ooh. the coyote mother. And like, that is this sort of, um, well, I don't know how to talk about it without reading right. it, right? My own. <laughs> yeah. So that that's, becomes even like an that sentence is like, Oh, yeah. <laughs> how do you write about this? But I think that idea of like, what is her relationship? She's both of those things, right? She's like this real, she's protector and this, um, aggressor. I love that so much. Thank you for sharing your obsession with us. And congratulations on the book, Erica. This was such a pleasant, pleasant conversation. Thank you so much. All right, that's it for this week. Thank you, as always, for listening along. As you may have noticed, I mentioned what our February book club pick is in the conversation with Erica. It's called How Far the Light Reaches, and it's by Sabrina Imbler. And especially if you've already read it, we would really love to know what you think. You can send your thoughts over to nerdatpodcast at gmail.com. We already have an interview with Sabrina in the feed. They are delightful. You should check it out. We'll also have our full discussion of the book coming up on the last two Tuesday of February, which, believe it or not, is already around the corner. The show is produced by me and Anna Bauman, and Brendan Banazak is our executive producer. We will see you next week. The only thing I was going to say about UFOs is that if it's truly aliens, that I am surrendering immediately. Like, immediately. <laughs> like, do not... Like, I told all my loved ones, my family, I was like, they're coming, and they're going to be better than us, and I'm surrendering. I'm joining their team 100%. <laughs> Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Meantime, it was chaos today at the Chicago City Council. A Chicago cop with a controversial past is running for judge. Other times you're looking for a deeper understanding of what's going on in the city. Wow, that's so, no one has asked me that question. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based. So you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts or at wbez.org slash rundown.